to our panel, uh, which is a book launch for this wonderful book here. Thank you uh, to Michelle from uh, Paul Gray for bringing uh, the book. Um, so it's titled Case Studies in the Origins of Capitalism. Um, and what we're going to try and do today is to uh, present the book, our perspective, the perspective that informs the book, and also try to raise some of the uh, strategic issues that, can, uh, that, that we can draw from it. Um, <clears throat> and so what we're going to do, I'm going to present the overall framework, framework of the book. Um, I'm going to go first. And then I think Charlie will go, and he would address uh, it will address the issue of the uh, relationship, the connection between capitalism and racism, capitalism and race. And then uh, uh, Nicole Leach will go last, and she will talk about uh, her chapter in the book, which is on uh, gender, and she presents a critique uh, and solidarity of uh, political Marxism from the perspective of uh, social reproduction theory, right? Um, so I'll go first. I think that our book makes two important and hopefully crucial uh, contribution that can be useful politically. Um, so the first one is that it shows through many examples, we study different cases of the emergence of capitalism in different countries and regions in the world covering uh, England and France, Catalonia, uh, um, and then the US, Canada, um, what else, Brazil, uh, Japan, um, Taiwan, am I forgetting any, any cases? Okay, so it's quite diverse, and what we're trying to show here, working from the perspective, you know, our theoretical framework is what's been called uh, political Marxism, we uh, prefer, definitely Charlie prefers the term, uh, and he came up with it, uh, capital-centric Marxism, that is, you know, capital, the book by Karl Marx, uh, centric Marxism, um, <clears throat> uh, which was developed by uh, Robert Brenner and the late Ellen Maxson's work, right? And so the first thing that we do with the studies is trying to show um, that capitalism is not natural. Uh, it is historical. Capitalism is a historical social system. It has an observable beginning, and it will likely have an end. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, or for sure, uh, <laughs> second thing is that it contributes our book, uh, we believe, to our capacity to understand the historically distinct, uh, specific laws of motion that define capitalism, which is crucial to orient our socialist politics and struggles against uh, capital. So it relates directly to the uh, topic of this year's HM New York conference, right? Um, so starting from there, I want to say first that, and I think most people would agree in the room here, that socialism is not simply the alleviation or even the complete eradication of social economic inequalities, right? Fundamentally, so socialism is the end of class exploitation, which means uh, it is also the end of alienated social life. It implies, in other words, collectively taking control over, over our collective and individual lives. So in all class societies, uh, all class societies, they imply in varying degrees and forms alienated or reified social relations that confront us as material structures that limit and orient our individual and collective actions. In other words, 
In class societies, we engage in social relations and institutions and historical processes that limit and control us much more than we can control them, okay? Uh, this is a basic and crucial tenet of historical materialism. That is, in class society, societies, it is not just our natural but also our social environment that determines the material context that shapes our life and our class interests. So to quote Ellen Mixon's word, she says, quote, the forms of social interaction with nature produced by human beings themselves become material forces no less than our natural forces, okay? Unquote. Uh, this is the case under capitalism, as uh, I will come back to in a minute, uh, but also in pre-capitalist class society. So, for example, under feudalism, for instance, in a context where direct producers, that is the vast majority of them being peasants, had di di direct access to uh, their means of productions and subsistence, landlords in that context appropriated surplus, surpluses through what Marx called extra-economic means. All right. Moreover, since in that context of the feudal modes of production, uh, sovereignty was parcelized, landlords evolved in a context in which they were competing against one another, against each other, to exploit the peasantry on their respective lands. Right? Consequently, in order to reproduce themselves as members of the ruling class, Landlords had to systematically accumulate military and administrative means of exportation. That is, they needed, they were forced to engage in processes of state building, right? So peasants on their part had to yield a portion or all of their surpluses to their landlords, thus contributing, unwillingly contributing, to the reproduction of a system, a social system that led them to face constant violence and war. Right? So here, it didn't really matter whether you were a nice or an evil warlord or landlord, right? Uh, you had to develop your coercive power uh, and to maximize the exploitation of peasants living on your land in order to survive and reproduce as a member of the ruling class. You had to do this. Uh, now, of course, peasants struggled to better their conditions and were sometimes successful in decreasing the level of exploitation that they were facing. But the crucial point here is that the balance of, uh, the balance of power between classes didn't, and the, that that class struggle did not alter the fact that as long as you remain under feudal social, social property relations or feudal mode of exploitation, as long as, as this prevailed, members of the ruling class were in, in direct possession of the state, which they had to systematically use to extract surpluses from their peasants and to systematically wage war against one another. So my point is that any serious assessment of the balance of power between classes under feudalism needs to be situated, placed in the context within which these laws of motions and rules of reproduction within this material context that structured class struggles. Now, under capitalism, capitalism now entails radically different, but nonetheless also very material laws of motion um, or rules of reproduction that all social agents are also bound to uh, follow. Under capitalism, both exploiters and direct producers, workers, become market dependent. 
Okay? Uh, and this implies that capitalist firms face competitive imperatives that compel them to specialize, innovate, and accumulate. They are compelled, in other words, by market imperatives to maximize profits and so to maximize the exploitation of the workforce, uh, of their workforce, in order to stay afloat, right? Again, it is immaterial here. It's not important whether or not they're good or bad persons. They are compelled to do this. They're facing rules of production. Uh, likewise, workers lose access to the means of production in, under capitalism, and they are compelled to compete with one another to sell their labor power to employers for whom they are producing surplus, surplus value, thus feeding a system that thrives on the systematic exploitation and alienation of their labor. So again, here under capitalism, like in any other class societies, we have rules of reproduction, laws of motion, that are shaping the material context in which class struggle take place, takes place. So these rules of reproduction, they amount to material forces that structure social relations and historical processes as well as the functioning of state institutions, okay? And that's a crucial point on which I will come back in a minute. Now, in order to understand all of this, all of this theoretical stuff that I just threw at you, uh, in order to understand this and how capitalism functions, you also need to understand that the emergence of capitalism, it implied something else than a simple extension of trade a simple extension of commercial exchanges and activities and networks, okay? You need a radical transformation of social relations and radical transformation of social property relations that will make social agents market dependent, thus bringing forth new rules of reproduction and material structures that I was just talking about a minute ago. So, Capitalism, and that's the point we're trying to make in this book, is no more a trans-historical phenomenon than it is a mere theoretical concept. It's not just a concept, okay? It is actually a real, and this is a crucial point, I think, that we're trying to show and that we demonstrate in that book. Capitalism, it's a real thing, okay? Uh, it's, uh, it is a real structured historical process, a real structured mode of production that we can actually observe, that we can see unfolding in history, okay? And we can see and, and, and discover when it actually begins. And this is precisely, again, uh, what the contribution to case studies in the origins of capitalism have been doing. So, hey, we're trying to describe the transformation of social property relations, that is, a transformation of a mode of production, or put another word, or, or an exploitive mode of production. And what we mean by that is, the specific and manifold configuration of social power that allows one class to appropriate surpluses at the, at the expense of one or several other classes, okay? The specific and multi-dimensional uh, restructuration uh, uh, of social power and this is what allows capitalism to emerge, okay? So that's the first thing, and we explain how that takes place in different national or regional contexts. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that going from there, we can see how you, when you have these new capitalist social property relations, you have radically new and observable patterns of A, 
wealth creation and systematic capital accumulation, you can actually see that unfolding and happening, okay? Not the case before, now it's happening, something changed, okay? You can see that happening. And a radically new context of class struggles, okay? Patterns of class struggle will take a different shape also. So, just to give you a few examples really rapidly, because I don't have obviously time to go through all these, you know, historically rich uh, cases. Uh, building on the work of Robert Brenner, Spencer Dimock in his chapter shows how the unintended consequences of strategies of reproduction of English landlords led to the emergence of commercial rents in the English countryside that forced incipient capitalist tenants facing new market imperatives, uh, as I said in the English countryside, to systematically improve the productivity of their land, a pattern that implied in less to mass evictions of peasants. Okay? I show in my chapter how French merchants and industrialists that have been very weakly investing in the mechanization of, for example, textile production in order to seize market opportunities uh, before and even for decades after the French Revolution, then began to face market compulsion to systematically develop productive forces under their control from the 1860s when the French state compelled the, uh, by British ge geopolitical pressures to build, the French state was compelled by these English ge geopolitical pressures to build a new integrated national market, which the French state rapidly exposed to British economic competition by ending decades of ultra-protectionist policies. So now, facing new competitive imperatives, you see French industrial firms rapidly mechanizing production and seizing over labor processes, thus provoking the largest uh, wave of strikes in France at the time, in history at the time. Charlie shows how in the US, the, cons the consolidation of, newly independent, of a newly independent state in the wake of the American Revolution transform northern agriculture into petty capitalist farming through the establishment of a competitive market for land and compelled farmers to specialize, innovate, and accumulate. And the development then of capitalism in the north and its ensuing clash with revived southern plantation slavery in the south are key to understanding, he argues, the causes of the US Civil War. Okay? Mark Cohen, to give you a last example in his chapter, shows how changes in illegal enforcement of landlords' property right enacted by the Meiji state under Western imperial pressures, tied to its effort, the Meiji regime, its effort to reform the land tax, undermined the non-market access to the means of subsistence previously enjoyed by peasant cultivators in that country and forced them to steadily develop the productivity of the land leading to epoch-making economic development, okay? Now, I could go on and on. I don't have time to do this, obviously. You know, we have too many cases here. Um, but one point that I want to make and underline is that the state, in all these cases, played a crucial role to implement capitalism, okay? It was true in England, but once British industrial capitalism had matured uh, in the second, third, of the 19th century, geopolitical competition forced continental ruling classes in Europe 
to use their states, which they literally controlled, over which they had direct and uni unilateral control to engage into capitalist transitions of their own on the European continent. As we also show in the book, imperialist states and domestic powers also played a crucial role in the propagation of capitalism throughout the global south to this day. But the point I really want to underline here is that once the state had created, the states had created capitalism, it fell prey to this system. So it is true that capitalism entails a separation of economic and political spheres. Because now under capitalism, the ruling class no longer have to monopolize access to the state to exploit direct producers through what Marx called extra-economic means. It can now, the ruling class, it can now exploit market-dependent workers on the basis of its control over the means of production in the economic sphere. Now, this allows the state, in turn, to become formally, formally autonomous. Okay, it's not under the direct control of the ruling class. It, it's not a possession, it's not, it's not fused with the ruling class, per se. Though this possibility was always actualized as a result of intense struggles from below. Um, now, because of this, the state itself becomes a field of class struggles, and the state will, in part, evolve according to a challenge a, a changing balance of power between classes, right? Having said this, we also need to keep in mind the point that I made earlier. That is, we need to understand and assess the balance of forces between classes by always situating it within the, the logic of a structured material context which has distinct laws of motion. This then allows us to see that the state under capitalism is never simply a crystallization of a balance of power between classes. As is claimed, for instance, by David Broder, who takes his cue from Polanzas in his contribution to the last issue of Jacobin magazine. He says, you know, the state is crystallization of balance of power between classes. Well, it's maybe half true, but it's really not the, the whole picture, right? Crucially, we need to recognize that the capitalist state, though no longer under the direct possession of the ruling class, is systematically biased in favor of capital under capitalism. But briefly, as long as capitalist social property relations remain in place, in order to function properly and to maintain its legitimacy, the state is compelled to systematically support capital accumulation. As explained by Brenner, uh, without rising profits and investment, the state won't get the resources, the economic resources it needs to actually function properly, uh, and many will suffer from unemployment, which could lead to a legitimistic crisis. So I'm a member of Quebec Solidaire. I'm a member of a broad left party in Quebec. I believe that we need to do electoral work not only for propagandist purposes, I think that we need to try and seize power by forming a socialist or what David Kempfield has called a class struggle government. But thinking strategically about how we're going to do this, we always need to keep in mind the laws of motions of the capitalist modes of production and their application for our understanding of the state. The state is never simply the reflection of a balance of forces between classes it is also functioning in a system that has really material um, laws of motions 
So I'll end up here. Let me start. How much time do I have, Xavier? Ten? Uh, no, you have uh, fifteen. All right. I may get to a second topic as well. But let me start with the question of race, because race and gender are non-class forms of oppression, have been difficult questions for various strands of Marxism. And this has been particularly the case for political Marxism or capital-centric Marxism, which has often been accused of being race and gender blind. And this sense of this, this claim is reinforced by probably the worst formulation Alan Mixon would ever made. In, uh, it's in an essay that's in the Democracy Against Capitalism collection. At the very least, class equality means something different, requires different conditions from sexual or racial equality. In particular, the abolition of class inequality would by definition mean the end of capitalism. But is it the same necessarily true about the abolition of sexual or racial inequality? Sexual and racial inequalities are not, in principle, incompatible with capitalism. And this statement has been, made, has been cited by many people to show that this approach to understanding the structure and process of capitalism is incapable of explaining race and gender. I want to briefly make an argument that, in fact, this perspective can, in fact, give us very clear insights into why capitalism constantly produces and reproduces racial inequality. I think the problem with Wood's formulation is that she confuses the theoretical and historical preconditions of capitalism with the necessary effects of its re social reproduction. So, one could argue that all you need for capitalism to exist is the transformation of means of production into capital, which means that the ability of exploiters to maintain possession, maintain possession of land, tools, etc., must take place through successful market competition, and where the laborers become wage become where the laborers become wage laborers. In other words, that is all that is necessary for the dynamic the operation of the law of value, the dynamics of capitalism, competition, accumulation, etc., to begin to unfold. However, once they unfold, I'm going to argue that the process of both competition and co and accumulation necessarily create the space for the production and reproduction of racial difference. And here I'm working with the, I think, very similar framework to understanding capitalism developed by Anwar Sheikh and particularly by Howard Botwinick. For Sheikh and Botwinick, capitalism is unique in the operation of the law of value, that it is a system governed by competition and profitability, etc. They take up the common misperception among both conventional economists and even those who consider themselves Marxian radical economists that competition and accumulation are supposed to, according to most versions of this, create homogeneous labor processes, 
homogeneous profit rates and homogeneous wage rates. Most people who read the 25th chapter of Capital tend to see this as, well, Marx is going to say, firms are getting bigger and bigger, there's fewer and fewer of them, the working class is being de-skilled, etc. There's a process of homogenization. They look at competition and they accept basically mainstream neoclassical economics notion of perfect competition. Lots of very small firms, all are price takers in perfect knowledge, and a painless, automatic, and non-turbulent adjustment to price signals. If there's a new technique, everybody quickly adapts it, etc. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with reality of capitalism from its inception in the 17th century in agri English agriculture, and particularly not after the Industrial Revolution, when the development of fixed capital, mechanization, what Marx called the rising organic composition of capital, becomes the driving force of accumulation. And in fact, a careful reading of Marx and a look at reality set shows us that accumulation competition constantly differentiate conditions of production. Yes, you have mechanization, you have growth in the size of firms, centralization, you have fewer firms, uh, concentration and centralization, but because of the constant reproduction of the reserve army, there's constantly creating spaces for less capital intensive, more labor intensive branches of industry that can be fed by and maintained by exceedingly low wage labor because of the constant reproduction of the reserve army of labor. In other words, the process of accumulation differentiates labor processes, profit rates, wage rates differentiates both capital and labor. Competition, real competition, which takes place through the use of fixed capital, the investment in more buildings, machinery, etc., also produces heterogeneity, not homogeneity. Because once a capital invest, capitalist invests in what is at one point the latest techniques, and invest billions of dollars in planted equipment, machinery, etc. If a year or two later, a new plant in that branch of industry opens up with much more modern techniques and is more competitive, they can't immediately junk it. They have to amortize, use up that fixed capital so that the process of competition within an industry constantly creates differentials, different labor processes, different profit rates, different wage rates. Similar process takes place between industries as capital moves between industries. And again, this is not an automatic, smooth process, but as Shay puts it, a turbulent process. Now, what I argue in an article I've been working on, on and off now for a couple of years, is that the reality of that capitalist capitalism produces a very contradictory lived experience in terms of how people perceive social, legal, economic equality. On the one hand, as Marx puts it in the first volume of Capital, when he talks about the buying and selling of labor power, the labor market, on first glance, appears to be, as he puts it, the veritable Eden of liberty, equality, and Bentham. Capitalists and workers face each other as not only ostensible legal equals in most situations, not all, 
but as owners of commodities. The capitalist owns the means of production, we have our labor power, we exchange, and capitalists pay the value of labor power. However, the reality is the process of exploitation itself creates constant growing class differentiation between capital and labor by squeezing out the traditional middle classes. And as I've just laid out, accumulation and competition constantly differentiate capitalists, constantly differentiate work, the working class. Race, I would argue, the notion that humanity is divided into groups with distinct and unchangeable characteristics that make certain groups superior, other groups inferior, is the way in which both capitalists and workers in most situations make sense of this contradiction. That on the one hand, we're all supposed to be born free and equal with access to life, liberty, and property, all this good Lockean crap, but in reality, we live in a world where there's constant inequality. So how do we explain why some are rich and powerful, some are poor, why some get better jobs, why others don't? Well, there are inherent differences between people. And that there's an, a, an incessant process under capitalism of the racialization of, previous, of differences that had previously been seen as flexible, transitory, etc. So in pre-capitalist societies, you don't need a notion of race to explain inequality, because inequality is assumed because of the role of extra economic coercion, etc. Under capitalism, you have to explain this. And you then take differences that previously have been very fluid, religion, heathens and believers. These become racialized. You can see this very clearly in the evolution of anti-Semitism from the 18th to the late 19th and early 20th century. In the 18th and up through the late 19th century, before capitalism really takes hold in most of Europe and what's today the global north, anti-Semitism was about the blood libel, etc. But if Jews started eating, you know, converted to Christianity, started eating pork and shrimp, and uh, stopped, you know, stopped circumcising their male children, everything would be cool. By the late 19th century, the late 20th century, Jews become a racialized group. We, and we see this process in every capitalist society. And I talk a little bit in the book, in the article, about how this takes place, not just in the United States, where the concept of race is born in colonial Virginia in the late 17th, early 18th century, but it is constantly reproduced in every capitalist society. Uh, how much time do I have left? Um. I think five minutes. Just five minutes. All right. Yeah. Then I'm going to actually switch gears a little bit and talk about the strategic importance of this approach to history. And this has to do, and it's something I would have raised in a debate that I had with Eric Blank this morning, but we decided not to do live action reenactment re play, uh, and I didn't get to play Lenin to his Kortsky, but if we were to yeah. talk about there's been a revival of, been good, of what are left reformist, what I would call left reformist politics, coming out of Karl Kowski's vision in the Erfurt program and even up to 1909 in the, his book *The Road to Power*, in which there's a vision of capitalism progressively homogenizes the working class, capitalism progressively socializes the means of production. Capitalism progressively moves towards its ultimate limit. 
Thus, the job of revolutionary social democracy, as Kautsky put it, is not to prepare for a revolution, but to simply facilitate a natural evolutionary process. Now, this vision, I believe, is very directly connected to the Marxism of the Second International, the notion that where Marxist theory of history, where they basically ignore capital, which is one of the great unread texts in the Second International, <laughs> the Grundrisse wasn't even known, and rely primarily on what is known as the 1857 preface to the introduction to the critique of political economy, where Marx talks about history is driven by the transhistorical development of the productive forces, that each social relations develop to a certain point, when it reaches its limit, there's a crisis, and then new social relations emerge, which continue to facilitate the, the growth of the productive forces. It is this notion, this is the theoretical foundation for this notion that socialist, that the role of socialists and Marxists is to aid an already ongoing and in a sense inevitable historical process. Now, I believe, uh, and I could argue this somewhat later points, that while theoretically the hard left of the social democracy, Luxembourg, Lenin, Trotsky, others, never theoretically break with this, they break with it in practice. That they understand that the role of Marxists is to prepare for revolutionary upsurges by cohering out of periodic upsurges of the working class and the popular classes, revolutionary-minded workers who are prepared to take advantage of crises that do not automatically lead to the, to the transformation of capitalism. And that, I would argue, is that, for me, one of the reasons this was such an attractive framework 40 years ago is that it provided a theoretical foundation for a very different sort of political and strategic practice. Sure. Uh, so I come by my chapter, or I guess my entry into this, in a, in a different sort of way. I come at it from a socialist feminist perspective, and one of the things that I was kind of grappling with was the, the debate within socialist feminism over dual systems or triple systems analysis and a unitary theory for looking at gender oppression uh, under capitalism. Uh, and for me, it was trying to find a way to counter the, the discussion that is sometimes brought up or the evidentiary base that is sometimes brought up that uh, women's Oppression is everlasting. It goes back ages and ages beyond capitalism, beyond feudalism. It is eternal. Therefore, these are two different systems interacting amongst each other because one, we can trace the history back much longer than the other. And it was trying to find a way to counter that that nugget to look at the way that gender oppression operates under capitalism right now, which I think is, is easy to argue for a unitary system if you take that snapshot. But when you bring in that question of historicity or transhistoricity, then there's that lingering question. Uh, so I turned to political Marxism to try to help with this discussion. I, so for me, that, that was also a little, little bit difficult because as Charlie mentioned, 
one of the histories with political Marxism is, is it's not necessary friendliness to a gender analysis in some of its earlier iterations. So I, what I'm going to talk about for the next 15 minutes, because Abby said I could have an extra two, um, <laughs> is kind of the first part of that that thought process of how do I get political Marxism ready to help me with that question. My chapter in the book, which I won't tell you about right now, so you have extra incentive to read it, <laughs> uh, is the flip side of that, of how does this renewed political Marxism then help us address that question of, of unitary versus dual systems in terms of, of looking at the history of gender oppression, or well, looking at the history and into gender oppression under capitalism and, and looking at that question. So this is really just a 15-minute spiel for reading a chapter in a singular book. Um, so considering that that was kind of my, my reason for coming to political Marxism was a kind of transition to capitalism and gender oppression question, the immediate thought would be to go to Silvia Federici and Caliban and the Witch. Um, and another reason why you should read this book is because I tell you why that's not as helpful as you would think it would be. So I will leave that as a golden gem for later when you're at home tossing and turning tonight and need some night bedtime reading. Um, but when I turn to political Marxism, what I find is a particular focus on the rules of reproduction. There is a change, a fundamental change between feudalism and capitalism of the rules of reproduction and how uh, society is able to get from day to day, generation to generation. And that becomes a moment where we can really exploit uh, gender analysis or social reproduction feminism and to try to bring those two together and find out what is that, that place where we can sneak in a unitary theory for both capitalism and gender. But in order to make this work, uh, I needed to, to push political Marxism a little bit. So Robert Brenner, when he opens up his, his discussion of, of the transition in political Marxism, he starts by uh, defining class structure. Uh, so that definition, which is on this page, um, that he gives, uh, he specifically describes class structure as, quote, containing two analytically distinct but historically unified aspects. First, the relations of the direct producers to one another, to their tools, and to the land in the immediate process of production, what has been called the labor process or the social forces of production. Second, the inherently conflictive relations of property always guaranteed directly or indirectly in the last analysis by force, by which an unpaid for part of the product is extracted from the direct producers by a class of non-producers, which might be called the property relationship or the surplus extraction relationship." End quote. So for me, the problem with starting with this analytic definition is that it, it focuses or hones in at labor uh, at the immediate process of production. So Brenner effectively in that moment then excludes social reproduction 
uh, from his conceptualization of class structure. And he sets as the economic base or the real locale for class analysis, the immediate process of production. Uh, this definition of class structure narrows the field of analysis to only that labor that is present within this limited sphere, which for a feminist perspective is unacceptable and unnecessary. Uh, Value-producing labor, social reproductionists argue, while central to the ways that people cooperate to provide for their daily and future needs, is a necessary yet insufficient condition of historical analysis. Social reproduction feminists uh, have tackled this issue of limited definitions of class and labor within Marxist analysis and can provide a helpful alternative uh, to not allowing political Marxism analysis of social property relations to slip at times to becoming a more narrowly defined discussion of production relations and not social relations. So social reproduction, uh, according to Stephen Gill and Isabella Backer, uh, refers to both the biological reproduction of the species and indeed its ecological framework and ongoing reproduction of the commodity labor, labor power. In addition, social reproduction involves institutions, processes, and social relations associated with the creation and maintenance of communities and upon which ultimately all production and exchange rests. So integrating this ontological position within a Marxist class analysis entails reworking our understanding understanding of production relations. So that, for instance, uh, it forefronts the recognition that social reproduction, social production and social reproduction are two aspects of one process of capital accumulation, um, which conforms with Marx's announcement that, quote, when viewed, therefore, as a connected whole, and it's flowing on with incessant renewal, Every social process of production is, at the same time, a process of reproduction. So social reproduction feminists argue... that if Marx's interrogation of capitalism is understood as being a discussion of social relations as opposed to a static thing, the economy, then the social production of people must be included within these, with these social processes and not assumed. This pronouncement follows the spirit of political Marxism's discussion of social property relations and Ellen Maskin's would insistence on thinking of class as process along the lines of E.P. E. Thompson. Uh, so Backer and Gill further echo the sentiment with their conceptualization of social ontology uh, by explicitly connecting social reproduction to uh, this kind of understanding of process. Um, Backer and Gill uh, state that their social ontology is a historical and a human process, a process that involves human agency in the creation of the institutions and structures of social life in a given period. And Sue Ferguson notes that the activating force behind uh, this transformative process and uh, behind the social ontology is that of labor. So Backer, Gill, and social reproductionists also draw on Gramsci's distinction between work and labor uh, to help visualize this process. Uh, so work broadly mediates the relations between social and nature orders and combines the theoretical and practical activity of human beings in understanding, understanding of movement and change. Uh, this is a process that takes account of past, present, and future. And by contrast, labor is a particular aspect of work, which in a capitalist social formation is that part 
which is appropriated and controlled by capital in the labor-capital relation. So by bringing in this framework, social reproduction and feminism paves the way to open up the unnecessarily narrow analytic lens of reified surplus value producing labor to focus that tension back onto a broader, more inclusive conceptualization of labor or Gramsci's work. Uh, and by broadening political Marxism's conceptualization of labor, social reproduction feminism provides an alternative to this definitional exclusion of social reproduction. So this itself is necessary, or is a necessary challenge to political Marxism, but it's not enough. Uh, we've kind of opened the door for that exclusion, but we have to also make sure that the social reproduction that is imagined within this, this critique of, of political Marxism is, is an appropriate one. Um, along with, at times, uh, excluding social reproduction definitionally from from his class analysis, Brenner has also uh, not completely banished the neo-Malthusian population analysis uh, out of his economic critique. Uh, he dismisses its helpfulness in describing capitalist relations of population and production and economic growth and, and movement, but he does still accept uh, the neo-Malthusian two-phase population thesis and its descriptive abilities for the feudal period. <coughs> and this is you know, in context of fighting with the neo-Malthusian uh, transition theorists. Uh, it's not just out of nowhere decided to talk about Malthus. If so, then political Marxism would not have engaged me at all if we just decided to talk about Malthus for no reason. Um, but so within that discussion, there is a still kind of retention of Malthus's descriptive abilities. There's a not complete withdrawal from that sort of imagining, which for me showed a lack of creativity and engagement with, with the question of, sure, um, which is how, how can we assume that laborers will be present for for this process of exploitation. That is assumption that, that Marxists continue to make, that the political Marxists make, that, that needs to be pushed back on. Um, so although Brenner questions the efficacy of Malthus's theory with the onset of capitalist social property relations, accepting the applicability of Malthus's theory under feudalism naturalizes social reproduction and fundamentally stunts Brenner's ability to fully account for how a change in social property relations affects processes and practices of social reproduction. And at best, demographic and population movements under capitalism are theorized by Brenner as, quote, reflecting the disequilibrium between the conflicting needs of conflicting social classes and not just between population and resources, end quote. Um, so Brenner, in this regard, is not erring any further than Marx. Uh, Marx's law of population under capitalism is, is somewhat similar and suggests that capitalism doesn't, capitalists don't need to worry about the reproduction of the laboring classes, that, that they can leave that to man's uh, self-propagation. And I forget the rest of the quote. It's not really worth remembering. Um, 
but again, kind of just naturalizes and assumes that that without incentive, the women will just act as broodmares for the state or for the social class that they come from. Uh, which Marxist feminists and feminists in, in general have pushed back on. Um, so pushing against this, this kind of biologicalist or naturalist understanding of social reproduction, social reproduction feminism insists on taking a more political, historical, social relations approach to this question. Lise Vogel, uh, in her uh, Marxism and the Oppression of Women Towards a Unitary Theory is, is noteworthy in that she starts from Capital, uh, Volume 1, and looks at the methodology and says, how do, we, how do we include this in a feminist analysis? Or how do we include a gender analysis using this Marxist methodology? And not trying to fit Marxism and, and feminism together in a kind of square hole round peg problem. Um, and extending that, that analysis, Vogel makes a critical contribution in arguing that the social organization of biological difference constitutes a material precondition okay, for the social construction of gender differences. It is not biology per se that dictates women's oppression, but rather capital's dependence upon biological processes specific to women, pregnancy, childbirth, lactation, to secure the reproduction of the working class. It is this that induces capital and its state to control and regulate female reproduction, and which impels them to induce a male-dominant gender order. So again, this is not even taking the naturalized biology bullshit line that there is male and female or that biology dictates women's oppression, it is suggesting that there are biological processes that state and that capital need to harness, need to exploit, and through which th that you can start to look at rigid definitions of gender, rigid definitions of sex, rigid definition of gender roles and sex roles, and how these are compelled to be reproduced, and how this becomes part of social production and the intermingling of social reproduction and social production all at once in a way that is not pull-apartable, that you cannot remove one and still have the other. Um, it also suggests that there is something important about bodies and uh, the particularity of bodies and what the state does to bodies and what capitalism does to bodies that is necessary for us to talk about. And it opens a further door for the discussion that Charlie was bringing up before me, as well as uh, the riveting chapter in the book that you're all rushing out to, to buy and read later. I think knowing that my time is up, I'll end there. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole.